Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan and if you'd like to listen to this or any previous episodes of the show, please go to our website irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at irishhistorypod or like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. Now this week, my co-presenter John Dorney from the Irish Story website was interviewing Dr. Ida Milne, a historian of diseases and author of Stacking the Coffins, Influenza in Ireland, 1918 to 1919. I'm very glad to be joined today by Ida Millen. Ida is the author of Stacking the Coffins, which is a history of the 1918 pandemic in Ireland. And I don't need to stress how topical this unfortunately is with our, our current situation of lockdown and pandemic. Ida, with the current pandemic that we have, there's been some politicization of its origins, people calling it the Wuhan virus and so on. And one of the things that's been picked up in, in kind of internet debate is that the 1918 flu started in Kansas, but it was called the Spanish flu. Uh, my understanding is that the origin is not that clear cut at all, is it? No, um, I'm part of a, a group, a network of international researchers who, who look at uh, the pandemic from through dif- different disciplines. Some of us historians, some of us historical demographers, sociologists, etc. And uh, we uh, keep, I suppose, uh, an open mind about it. We don't think that Kansas was the origin, the you know, or that Albert Gitchell uh, was patient zero. Um, we think it, it may have started earlier than that, and that there are perhaps um, clues in some of the other diseases that were identified in the war at the time, like pyrexia of unknown origin. There were a couple of them that could possibly have been precursors to this disease. Pyrexia just means a fever. So some of them, um, there's one case study from a couple of guys from Tipperary, a couple of Tipperary soldiers who were in Aldershot in, I think, 1917. And uh, when they got this disease, they turned whatever disease they got, they turned purple, which is one of the kind of signature features of the 1918 flu, when the um, body wouldn't be oxidating uh, or the lungs were so full of stuff, they weren't oxygenating the blood as well. So, so when some historians look back at this, they said, I wonder, would that have been the same disease? And there was also a very unusual flu uh, circulating in London a little bit earlier in the war as well. We're not sure about it, but the two main origin theories are either um, Kansas City and Albert Gitchell, and that's a lovely media story, but I think now it's pretty much discounted as the origin. It does uh, it definitely spreads outwards from there in the very crowded troop camps in America. The other origin uh, theory is that it started in the clearinghouses at either side of the English Channel between Aldershot and clearing houses in Belgium and France, where both the troops and live food for the army, pigs and fowl of various kinds, geese and hens and ducks, all of which can be vectors of influenza, were kept in very close contact. Is there any parallel between this idea of the 1918 flu jumping from poultry to, or, or pigs to humans and this idea of the current coronavirus having jumped from some animal to, to humans? Oh yes, I think it's it's now known that it was an avian flu, and that it's um, I th- to think you know when one of these jumps happens, it's the first time in the human population. That's what makes it so dangerous to uh, the human population because it's a new disease to us, a novel disease to us. 
right. in the human population. So it has parallels, of course, again, because the, the Wuhan virus is understood, the coronavirus is understood to be, have come from bats and, and possibly snakes, I think, as well. Yeah, I mean, one thing just to clear up really in the, about talking about the 1918 pandemic is if it originated in military camps, either in France or in America or one of those, why on earth is it called the Spanish flu? Um, because uh, uh, there was heavy censorship of news from the war and naturally neither uh, side wanted the other side to know where their troops were weaker. By the time it emerged in Spain, it had already affected um, uh, principally the Allied troops, the American, the French and the United Kingdom um, troops. And it went on to infect the Germans much worse uh, towards the end of the war, particularly by uh, the work Howard Phillips has done on it shows that in September, October 1918, the German troops were very heavily infected with the influenza. But Alfonso XIII of Spain, the young king, the young king, Spanish king and about 3,000 of his courtiers went down with it on, I think, May 1918. And it was very widely reported because of that. So it was spoken about as being Spanish flu in the newspapers at the time. But equally at the same time, in even how that moniker caught, it's surprising because it was already, uh, you'll see it in the South African newspapers, you'll see it in newspapers pretty much everywhere in the world already by then. Yeah, and it was very much spread in the context of the First World War, wasn't it? That really helped to spread the disease. Yes, yeah, so that, that, that's without doubt. It was uh, particularly once America entered the war and they were trying to rush through across the Atlantic to bring over, I think it was a quarter of a million troops a month at one stage, to bring them in really quickly to try and knock Germany out of the war. It, it spread on, on crowded troop ships and transports of all kinds. Yeah, and roughly, you know, I mean, we're, this is the stuff we're hearing every day now, but roughly, like, how contagious was uh, the disease, the, the Spanish flu, so-called, and how deadly was it? Well, it actually wasn't very deadly at all compared to uh, some of the flus we would see, for example, you know, the bird flus that were in, in Vietnam and places uh, that kill maybe 50% of the people who catch it. Whereas this one, they estimate that it had a case fatality rate that about 2.5% of those who caught it died. And this is one of the things that made it so similar to um, the figures that were first coming from Wuhan for for this flu it was suggested that it also killed about two to 2.5 percent of those who caught it but of course i mean how do you measure those who caught it in 1918 when you don't have proper testing you know for, for a flu like that you'd be just kind of guessing that number so it wasn't in a way all that deadly very like the disease we have today the fact that it spread so quickly and so easily very very like the coronavirus we have today there were an awful lot of people got quite a mild dose so while we talk about it being deadly in terms of the actual numbers that it killed, that it killed upwards of uh, 50 million pe- people in the world, uh, 98% of those caught mm-hmm. the Spanish flu would survive it. So about, about 2 to 3% died from it in, in most parts of the world. In some parts of the world, like, for example, amongst the Inuit, it was far more deadly because they, wouldn't be as, uh, they would be more prey to falling sick from disease. Yeah, and some of those villages where, where it spread in, in North America or whatever, um, it would, might have killed 50% of the people who caught it. Wow. 
But generally, um, you know, it's something I've only realized with this current pandemic is that it's mm -hmm. actually an advantage for a virus not to kill that many people for its own sake. Yes, yeah. Um, there are many factors at play here, but but uh, what I found fascinating when Anthony Kinsler, um, a medical statistician, and I were doing, uh, he was helping me with the figures to look at, estimate the numbers of ill, if given that we knew the numbers of dead in Ireland. And the higher the case fatality rate, the fewer people would have caught it, which yeah. was fascinating. And it's counterintuitive to those of us who aren't very good at maths like me, um, you know, to, to what you'd expect. You'd think the more people it was going to kill, uh, the more people would get sick from it. But actually, you know, there are other factors at play too. Like, you know, how long uh, can you, uh, like we typically expect an influenza now to, to floris immediately when we get it. Whereas quite clear with the Spanish flu that you could be up and walking about with it. And we have lots of accounts of, the, of people, uh, say, for example, um, soldiers who came over to Dublin for a bit of R&R &R on a break from their war activities would be up and out sightseeing around Dublin. And only after a few days would they feel sick enough to actually have to go to bed with it. And that's, you know, that's quite like now. It's the problem with the COVID-19 yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So people could be up and, you know, pre-symptomatic and uh, feeling pretty OK, but clearly already have caught it and then go down with it. Yeah. Uh, Ida, can you give us a rough chronology of the global pandemic, if that's possible? In global terms, it seems to have emerged. You know, we, 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 I would be part of a, a group of international researchers who work on this. And we're always trying to revise that statistic backwards. When does it begin? So we think we have it back now to about February 1918, and it's possibly even earlier than that, but we have to keep looking. So, but the bigger outbreaks happen from March 1918 onwards, when it spreads like wildfire in America, obviously, and um, in Europe as well. Uh, so the first wave impacts in, I suppose, the late spring are early summer of 1918 in most places. And that's a called a relatively mild wave, but it does kill, but not, not, nothing like the same uh, vehemence that the second wave that happens in most places, again, in some places beginning August, in other places September, here in Ireland it was really October uh, 1918. And that seems to last in most places, again, for about 10 or 12 weeks. Uh, we have it until just after the December 1918 general elections. And then it comes back again in February, again, in most places uh, here in Ireland uh, for the third wave. We had it from February until about the middle of April. And after that, our death statistics drop significantly and don't rise again for the rest of the year, even though you will hear of small outbreaks in places like Longford or, you know, one or two deaths around the country or somebody will say, oh, well, my grandfather died, but it was November 1919. I said, well, yeah, that's possible. But the bulk of deaths stopped in the middle of April 1919. In some places, parts of the world, then, then the, uh, I suppose, further away from the centres where it happened, like South America, and also in, up towards the Arctic, uh, there's a fourth wave in 1920. And geographically in Ireland, uh, what are the worst hit kind of locations? Uh, again, the first wave um, hits the kind of northeast quadrant from Antrim down as far as Dublin. Belfast is particularly badly hit then. In the second wave, it moves, broadly speaking, down along the east coast. Of course, it has to come in through the ports. So you see a lot of activity around small ports like even Euros or Dundalk or um, even Arklow. You know, you can see kind of outbreaks ar around the ports from... There was a lot more, I suppose... Um, 
uh, activity from the smaller ports across the Irish Sea over to Britain then. So you see, um, rather than coming in through the bigger ports, if you like, you see all along the east coast in the second wave really, really badly hit and round the north uh, coast as far as Donegal. Uh, Donegal is really badly hit in all three waves and there's a couple of arguments uh, about this. Uh, my colleague Patricia Marsh, who's particularly looked at the position in Ulster, uh, was suggesting that it is to do with seasonal labour because Donegal has uh, traditionally a lot of connections with Scotland for seasonal labour and that they might then, uh, Tricia would say, have come back on boats to when somebody died from the flu in Scotland to bury them at home and of course have the traditional wake and that all those uh, would cause um, uh, more spread of the flu. Another reason I came across um, was when I interviewed a lady called Kathleen McMenamin who lived in Rathmullen and she was about 15 when the flu happened and she remembered that she said dear it was because of the navy uh, being stationed in Loch Swilly and the soldiers would be uh, coming in off the boats, the soldiers and sailors would be coming in off the boats and into the community and spreading the flu with them. So she actually remembered that happened and her, her mother was, I think, would have been nursing people in the community at that time. Then in the third wave, it kind of spreads to everywhere it hasn't been yet. And Mayo was particularly badly hit in the third wave. And again, that may be something to do with seasonal labour, but I don't know, haven't been able to really nail that one down yet. Yeah, I mean, as you know, I, I came across this kind of researching other things, researching the 1918 political situation in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. you were one of the first who made that connection, actually. Because yeah, but, most people, when they're looking at those other stories, they ignore the flu in the middle yeah. of it, but you didn't. Well, it's yeah. just, well it's the, I think that was... a. Um, a result of the new sources that we have. So, I mean, we have the Bureau of Military History and so on, which is an oral history mm. source. So people mm. just talk about what was important in their lives at the time. And you just kept coming across it again and again. You know, what amazed me was that it was prevalent in all kinds of places. You know, it turns up in Cavan, in, in the RIC's report there. I found a load of references to it in County Tipperary, in, in the Bureau of Military History, up in Tyrone. You know, I mean, I, I was just amazed by the prevalence of it. Yeah, it's spread everywhere. And yet when you look at some of the sources that you think would be most telling about it, they're completely silent on it. Like a lot of the hospital records don't even mention it. Really? And it's only when you root around them and you say, oh, that's what they meant. They wouldn't actually directly say we were hit by the flu, but they'd say something like because of the pressures on the hospital that year. That's funny. I mean, there was, uh, yeah, is, there, yeah. is there a political reason for that or is there a, like an organisation no. reason it's it's a curious thing and one which has been raised in recent days when uh, people are looking at uh, literature of the time and you have something like the wastelands t.s Eliot's famous poem about like a society that's in breakdown and an exhaustion and everybody always takes it to be post-war but actually it's also influenced um it's uh, if you know Eliot's life that it's influenced by family and friends who had the flu as well and this kind of it really is laced with this idea of, you know, um, post-flu languor, you know, that people have less energy after they've had a disease like that, you know, which is absolutely, you don't just recover from flu and get out of bed feeling absolutely brilliant. You're, you're, you're knocked by it for a few weeks afterwards, at least, and some people longer, depending on how badly they've had it. And again, that's something that's happening now. People are finding that they can't just go back to work having had it they've lung damage and um, other issues ongoing that the body just has to heal from and it's not just a question of the disease having gone away the damage that it did takes a while to go as well, well i mean it, it, it's it and for some to... people they never go 
Yeah, I mean, it has struck me that, you know, we're not used to diseases that we can't treat and that, um, you know, the idea of having like a high fever for seven days is not something that would normally happen. So this is it's a novel thing for, for us, unfortunately. Yes, very much so. I mean, we really thought we had infectious disease more or less on, under control, isn't it? An amazing thing that in 1918, when medicine thought bacteriology was the new amazing uh, way of controlling infectious disease and um, they were treating everything uh, uh, infectious diseases though they were all caused by bacteria and uh, the rates of death from infectious disease were obligingly dropping to play into that theory and of course now we know that a lot of infection is caused by viruses as well as you know there are bacterial infections viral infections do different things uh, flu obviously was caused by a virus so it, in a way, medicine then was forced to think again uh, when it found that this disease didn't respond to the normal bacteriological methods. I remember going on the radio on RT about at the very beginning of this and being actually afraid to say, well, 23,000 died from the Spanish flu in Ireland in 1918. It's quite possible the same number could die again now uh, because at that stage that would have seemed preposterous. Yeah, and hopefully, I mean, we can avoid that fate. But like, yeah, you know, yeah. But I mean, it doesn't it, seem preposterous anymore. No, well, as as history people, I mean, I remember a conversation that we had either on Twitter, and uh, we were both saying to each other, "We know terrible things can happen." I wonder if everybody else, you know. Yes, exactly. And we we were there, both of us knowing the statistics from from this past, and almost afraid to put it into the public domain to say it because people would say, "Oh, you're exaggerating." You know, it couldn't possibly do that much damage. Or we know more now. If we didn't have lockdown, would that have happened again? Because medicine would just not have been able to cope with the numbers like they couldn't in 1918. Like, I mean, if you had 800,000 ill now over 10 months, how would we cope with it? Yeah, and I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I know the lockdown is very frustrating for us all, but I mean, I think there's no reason why it wouldn't kill that number of people. Is there? I'm sure people will say... Uh, it, it couldn't, but I think it seems quite logical that a disease that spreads in much the same way and kills at much the same rate could yeah. kill those sort of numbers. And indeed, Sam McConkie, the, the virologist, suggested a number that was over 100,000. So some modelling heat steam. Yeah. Back to 1918, though, and the Spanish flu. A lot of the people, uh, i.e. people's accounts that I read, called it the black flu. What, why did they call it that? Uh, but that was because people's um, bodies often turned black after they died or even before they died. Um, and really that's because um, the lungs, the alveoli, the little sacs in the lungs were filled with blood and, and albumin and, and other materials, according to the PM reports. I've seen the postmortem reports that, that I've read. So they couldn't oxygenate the blood in the normal way. So your blood wouldn't become red in the arteries in the normal way though it, it was kind of purple and sluggish and uh, your bodies uh, w- w- when this happened it filled doctors and patients with dread because they knew the end was near and what other symptoms did the, the flu have principally it would be like the same effects as as an influenza a high fever headache one of the things that the reports mentioned for the time constantly is that there were were a lot of uh, nosebleeds with it and um, hemorrhages of all kinds, they'd say. And I'm not quite sure what they meant by that. There was also some diarrhea with it. I think that's normal enough in, in a fever. 
one of the things that I've heard constant reports from different parts of the country is that the headaches were so bad that people wanted to bang their heads off the walls uh, with it to try and reduce the pain. And um, there were particular reports from the South Dublin Union Hospital of, the, of that happening, now St. James's, of, of that happening there, that the patients um, actually became so violent they had to call in the DMP. And it was just violent through fever and they, they, they weren't able to control them. So they had to call in the DMP to control them. I've heard uh, another lady I interviewed who had maintained a lifelong curiosity about it. She told me that her 15-year-old brother down in St. Mullins in Carlo, that um, one day when he had it, he had a really bad dose of it. His head of blonde curls was just lying there on the pillow. And again, that's something you see through the newspapers is uh, it must have been quite common because it's in the newspaper advertisements. If you've lost your hair during the influenza pandemic, take pilocarpine or um, use pilocarpine lotion on your, on your head to restore the hair loss. We mentioned that the Spanish flu killed at a rate of about 2%. So most people who got it survived, but it's still for the people who got sick caused a great deal of dislocation, didn't it? Ah, yes. I mean, it, it was a thoroughly... So, some people got a very mild disease, just like we're seeing now with, with the coronavirus. Not much more than the cold and that we're still able to be up and about and things. But other people um, got the kind of classic flu thing that they would be floored by it. And then others uh, might have had not that bad a dose of the flu type, but would get a subsequent uh, bacterial infection like pneumonia or meningitis or something like that. And of course, in those days, there was no antibiotic to... Uh, treat bacterial infections, but antibiotics didn't come into uh, wide-scale use really until the 1950s, but began to be uh, become into use in, in the 1940s. The Spanish flu killed, as you said, about 2%, but who did it kill disproportionately or did it discriminate in its victims? The really unusual feature of this flu uh, was that it seemed to almost target young, strong, previously healthy adults. So you'll see throughout the newspaper reports, you'll see crack cycling ace in County Loud, a uh, Loud footballer who got it. Uh, you'll see a hammered tour in County Kildare who got it. Uh, you see handball champions in Wexford who got it. Um, a lot of reports from the Gaelic uh, Games uh, county teams of their players suffering from it. Uh, so it's it's strong, young, previously healthy adults. Maybe typically, um, they say globally that the, the average age, the median age for people dying is 28. Um, so typically it would be about 25 to 35. You'd see a peak in, in, in that decade for deaths. But in all um, young adults between 20 and about 45, there's a spike, a much uh, increased number for them. Not the kind of people you'd expect to be hit by a typical seasonal, seasonal influenza. And the other group that you see very badly hit in Ireland by it, I'm not so sure about other parts of the world, is the under fives. And particularly if you look at Dublin in October 1918 or November 1918, you will see page after page in the Registrar General's list of deaths, certified deaths of young children and particularly from the tenement housing in Dublin. It's, it's, it's just, you know, it would break your heart to read it. And the same thing with the lists of the dead from uh, Glasnevin Cemetery at the time, it's page after page of children from it. That's in terms of age. The other category or way it struck was in terms of uh, family occupation. So if the father or the mother had the job that involved dealing with the public, 
they were, regardless of class, they were more likely to, to die. So even the Registrar General at the time identified, uh, categorized according to four different types. So you had the first class, which would be your landlords or senior people in the ar- army, senior people in the banks. And those categories, the senior people in the army, senior people in banks would be more likely to get it because they dealt with the public. Second class was the middle class. Third class is uh, the artisan or, or petty shopkeepers class. And the fourth class is a very big class, the biggest sector, but a general uh, category for the working class. And in all those categories, people say who might own shops or who sold things or who worked in banks, or um, who were policemen, or uh, post people, or um, maybe drove ambulances, or uh, obviously worked in medical professions, or might be things like uh, porters, janitors. They, uh, all those kind of people who deal with the public were far more likely to die even within other, all other things being equal. Uh, and of course, overcrowded housing is, is another major way of exposing people to a bug like that once it gets into a building, as we see, I suppose, nursing homes, you know, that once people have shared accommodation or close quarters, it's harder to, to stop it spreading. And it's not only those people themselves, it's also their families. So when you look down through those lists of child dead in 1918, you'll see like child of a policeman or a child of a shopkeeper or a child of a shop worker or um, child of a soldier or things like that. They're all, uh, you know, it's almost predictable what jobs their family members could have. And of course, one of the things about hitting people uh, who are young, strong adults is that you also therefore hit, um, the, it'll also be the category where the parents of younger children. Sure. Uh, unusually, for a seasonal flu, typically a seasonal flu will um, attack the weak, older people. And uh, the older people seem to have some sort of protection from it. They think that's from an earlier encounter with a similar disease or a version of it. So it would be before the 1890s Russian flu. One of the things I found either was, you know, just looking at references to the Spanish flu in other sources was people tended to project it onto it kind of their own enmities. Like, for example, in uh, Tipperary, the volunteers, the Sinn Féiners there, thought that it was the separation women and the families of, of war soldiers who were getting the flu partially up in Tyrone. Uh, Kevin O'Shea, who was a Sinn Féin organiser, thought that Catholics were getting it as opposed to Protestants. Was there a lot of this where people were kind of projecting their own fears or enmities onto groups during the, the pandemic? Yes, interestingly that, that, that you should mention that because that is a feature of it, is that... Um, you know, in different parts of the world, it was given the name of the enemy quite often, uh, the Naples soldier or whatever, uh, you know, so it, it would become a, a different thing. They would kind of try to other it by uh, calling it something that belonged to whoever their traditional enemy was, like the Russian soldier or the Naples soldier or whatever on it. So I suppose people were, some people were trying to claim the identity and other people were not, you know, the ownership of, of this flu. Yeah. So it was interesting in that when you look at it around the world, it has all these different names, but the Spanish flu was the one that struck. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny, though. I think people project onto it their own political kind of ideas or social ideas as a kind of a way of feeling in control of it in some way when it's totally out of your control. Yeah, that was something that was really fascinating me uh, when I was doing the interviews, because I interviewed upwards of 50 people and some of them several times. And very few of them ever blamed the British for it. 
And I found this fascinating because, I mean, the island I grew up in, we blame the British for everything. Huh. Uh, I mean, I was born in 1960. And like, you know, that was 1966. I was the little Protestant child in Wexford pulling the um, placard up onto the wall uh, with the signatories. And um, as I think the youngest person who could read it in school, probably, Oskelga. <laughs> and, um, you know, so we, like even in a... a Protestant community in Wexford were very strong nationalists in 1966 when the commemorations happened. So like here you have all this time later, I was surprised that nobody tried to really blame the British for it. And I don't know whether it's because possibly they thought, knew that I was Protestant and didn't like to say that and associated us with being British as well. Or not. There was only one lady I interviewed. She was a nun in the Dominicans in Cabra. And um, she had grown up on an island in the Shannon. And she said, should we blame the British for it? Everybody blamed the British for it at the time. I was also really surprised that there was very little talk about God with it. God didn't come up in the conversations at all. And I suspect if you had done the interviews in the 60s or 70s, the talk about God would be a lot stronger. The mentions of religion would be a lot stronger. And that's very interesting. I mean, but at the time, I mean, some activists like Kathleen Lane, for example, the Republican doctor who, who uh, opened a, an emergency flu hospital, as you know, Ida, she certainly blamed the British for it and said it was, you know, it was incubated in the fever factories in Flanders and so on. Yes, yes, she did. Well, she blamed the war for it. She did. And uh, she said, well, she, what, what, why could you not expect something like that to come off? And again, that was kind of almost uh, like you hear quite a lot of echoes of, uh, like bacteriology was the current understanding. Flu was understood to be caused by a bacterium at the time. But when you hear Lynn and other doctors talk it, uh, and about it arising off the dead bodies in Flanders, and uh, you know, um, it, it's like it's going back to miasmatic theory, the earlier idea that malodorous caused disease and that they hung over uh, around in certain um, conditions, which would include like the dead bodies and the uh, horrible conditions in Flanders, in, in the battlefields. Yeah, well, that brings me on to my next question, because, you know, by implication there in your last answer, you know, medical science was nothing like what it is now. It was much better than it had been before, but still nothing like what it is now. And what was the health response to the 1918 pandemic? Because there wasn't this massive close down like we see in, in the Western world today. There wasn't a massive close down, but I think that has an awful lot to do with the fact that the war was ongoing and that it wasn't pushed because the needs of the war had to be met. Mm. And particularly here in Ireland at the time, because we had the new American air bases and naval bases here um, to sort out the convoy issue since the Germans had upped the U-boat campaign in the seas around uh, Britain and Ireland at the time, trying to knock us out of the war and deprive us of, you know, foodstuffs and, and other things and, and knock out the, the shipping network around these to weaken, you know, the Allies as well. Mm. But quarantine is a very old practice, really well known. Uh, some people say it stems back to Venice and the time of the Black Death, but actually it goes back before that, in, even into Persia. You know, it has long been known to be effective to control disease. So why we didn't do it, I don't know. But I think I continue to try and comb the War Office records for some signs of it or clues that it was considered and rejected. For Ireland, you would imagine we would have been able to, it would have been pretty obvious we could have quarantined. But again, I imagine it was because of the, the war interest and in particular of the American usefulness, uh, you know, that the, their bases here were really useful in the wartime. 
just death from disease was much more common at the time. I think there was just a greater tolerance of death. I mean, if you look at the statistics, death was twice as yeah, common. Yeah, yeah. As you know, the, the fellowship I did after I did the research in flu um, looked at infectious disease between 1910 and 2000 and how it reduced, particularly in children, over the course of that period. And when I began looking at those statistics, I could see that there were about 70,000 deaths each year on the total island and that an awful lot of those were from infectious disease. And we now have a, bit, a few over 30,000 in a t- typical year, north and south uh, yeah, in so the Republic and in Ireland. But of those deaths, about one-fifth were children under the age of five. And yeah. I find that statistic awesome and so heartbreaking. And it's something we really don't expect now. You know, when children die from infectious disease now, it's unusual rather than usual. But then it was so normal. So you would have five or 600 children a year dying from measles, in, uh, depending on whether there was a particular outbreak that year or not. But in or around, that was the average. Uh, you would have hundreds of children dying from scarlet fever, which can be prevented by um, antibiotic. Uh, you would have hundreds of children um, dying from diphtheria, which we now um, immunize against. Of course, we immunize against measles as well. We have whooping cough took several hundred each year but bigger killers than that were bronchitis partly again from poor living conditions smog etc but also pneumonias all types of pneumonias and of course what we historians of disease called the long pandemic tuberculosis Uh, so they weren't just killing uh, children but they were also killing adults so in any family at the time you would expect to have some body in it who died, maybe a child from a febrile convulsion, as my own mother's um, little brother did, who was born in 1928, I think. My mom was born in 31. Um, so, um, you know, you would expect that kind of death. One of the family's uh, stories that I found so typical of the time, it was told to me by Stella Larkin McConnell, uh, James Larkin's wonderful uh, granddaughter, who was so keen to talk about what the conditions were like that, to show why uh, James and the rest of the Larkin family fought so hard um, to get a decent living wage for people they knew and also for, uh, to get decent housing standards. And her father in particular uh, fought to rehouse Dubliners, Dennis Larkin. Uh, but her mother, uh, Dennis's wife, uh, was one of 10 children born in a tenement house in 34 Marlborough Street. And the only one of the 10 who survived over the age of five. And that is astonishing to our modern lens. And you're talking about here about like a family who went on to occupy the mansion house and to become the mayor and mayoress of, of, uh, mayor of Dublin and, and his wife. And they lost so many people. She lost so many of her siblings to infectious disease. And Stella had actually visited her tenement home and she said uh, that, that her grandmother, when her grandmother was still living in it in, in the 50s, and uh, she said like they had one bed, uh, it was upstairs, they had uh, a fireplace uh, to cook on. And of course, like there was no running water. You can imagine how hard we're finding it to curtail this disease today. And most homes, but not all, have running water. And, you know, in a way, while this disease is horrible, we don't have communities that are facing it with the same challenges that they would have had in 1918, the fact that premature death was still so common in early 20th century, and even more common before that, 
should probably inform the way we think about their ideas towards death and you know the idea of blood sacrifice and so on not only in the in ireland but in the first world war should probably be seen in the light of the fact that you were much more likely to die early anyway that's a really interesting connection i hadn't thought of that yeah and also that these were young men who were dying so there were people who would have been healthy enough to live beyond that period you know they're mostly looking at 20 what 20 to 25 year olds or so you know more likely to die in the war period in a lot of the British cities, and they had introduced the idea of having a city medical officer of health earlier than they had in Ireland. We had Charles Cameron in, in Dublin, um, who had been working, he was 88 during the time of the flu. He's employed directly by the corporation. But he'd been working tirelessly for 50 odd years to improve the health of Dubliners and had done really well at it, improving it enormously. Uh, even though people talk now about how bad it was in the 1910s, it was nothing like, as you say, what it was earlier. I mean, there wasn't a health service in those days like there is today, a national health service. But how did health authorities respond to the 1918 pandemic? Well, what we had was the poor law um, medical dispensary service and that covered about 70% of the Irish population Uh, and the other people would have been better off and would have relied on uh, a private service from a paid service from a general practitioner. So while we say we didn't have uh, a medical service, a good medical service like we have today at the time, it was considered to be in need of reform and there had been several attempts attempts to reform it in the early 1900s. But there was, um, you know, most people could get access to one of the dispensary doctors, either through a visit in their own homes or uh, by going into the dispensary. And in 1918, 1919, during the period covered by the flu, the medical dispensary doctors paid 100,000 extra visits two Irish people under their care in their own homes in 1918, 1919. Uh, They also got free medicine from that too. You know, but it was a rudimentary service. And there was no Um, cure, of course. There was no cure. Doctors fished around trying to find something in their medical bag, a bit like they're doing now. They tried lots of this different things at it. Um, So the Royal Academy of Medicine in Ireland uh, called a meeting of its members on the 15th of November 1918 uh, to pool uh, ideas about treatments. And they would talk about something uh, like quinine uh, to reduce fever. Uh, They'd talk about aspirin to relieve the headache. They would talk about um, some preparation of opium uh, to promote sleep because a lot of people were so sleepless because of that terrible headache, I assume, amongst other things. Um, They talked about calomel, which is to open the bowel and make the patient get up out of bed and go to the sit on the pot, uh, which I imagine is rather more to do with uh, promoting confidence, uh, kind of a confidence trick on the part of the doctor who had nothing much else he could give you that was effective. So if you suddenly felt the urge to get out of bed and go to the loo, you might feel, oh, I'm improving a bit. Mm. Um, but I can't see why it was so important to keep the bowels open otherwise. Charles Cameron was, was, uh, he was 88 at the time. He was Dublin uh, Medical Officer of Health employed by Dublin Corporation. And he um, recommended that uh, people, as soon as they got it, they should go to bed and stay there until they're really better. And he said uh, getting out of bed too early uh, caused a lot of people to get relapses and things like pneumonia afterwards. Uh, So he recommended, his advice is really plain, simple, easy to understand, uh, excellent lesson in communication. that he said, um, 
you know, people should take um, plenty of fluids that um, they shouldn't um, eat too much. But he thinks that we're gentle on their system, like, for example, gruel. And he said that good nursing really saved many during this pandemic. And he said getting out of bed too early would leave people prone to a relapse. Of course, Cameron was pretty well off um, himself and, you know, not everybody was in that position. So some people did feel obliged to get out of bed and go back to work and paid the consequences for it too. Yeah, Kathleen Lynn, who I mentioned earlier on, said that she had uh, inoculation against the flu. But of course, it wouldn't have been effective, would it? That's a really interesting one. Uh, I had kind of assumed uh, because it was made from bacteria, different kinds of bacteria. When you look, there there were uh, several uh, laboratories in Ireland making vaccines at the time. And Lynn used one that was made in UCD. There was another one made in TCD. And uh, there was a few others as well. I've seen uh, the ingredients in the one made by Wellcome. Uh, so it contained, um, because of course flu was understood to be a bacterium, and they really thought it was caused by uh, something called Pfeiffer's bacillus, which we now know apparently as HIV, Haemophilus influenzae uh, bacillus. So it would contain Pfeiffer's bacillus and a few other uh, types of bacteria that were thought to be possible contenders uh, for causing flu. So um, most of the vaccines contained a variety of these and um, that means that people were being injected with bacteria at the time when they had flu because typically they gave it to people who already had the disease at the time who were already suffering. They'd give it to some who weren't and I know Lynn is supposed to have saved thousands of lives from that like the folklore will tell you that she saved thousands of lives of Dublin by, by vaccinating at the time. And of course, she vaccinated the people, the workers and the patients in St. Ultans, which she had set up at the time as, as an influenza hospital, as a precursor to her children's hospital, which later, you know, was for, more formally established as St. Ultans. Now, what I've asked, when I've asked scientists about this, they'll tell me is that it might prevent the secondary infections, bacterial infections, uh, like pneumonias from maybe HIV or maybe meningitis. They, they won't say that it did any harm, but they said who knows how they were prepared or anything like that. So it's a complex question and an interesting one. And Kathleen Lynn kind of brings us on to another aspect that I'm interested in personally of the 1918 pandemic, which is the political context. So, I mean, Kathleen Lynn was actually put under arrest by the authorities for her separatist activities, but was let out again you know, to treat patients during the flu. So what was the, you know, the interaction between the political situation in Ireland and the pandemic? Well, what I find absolutely fascinating is that the German plot, uh, you know, where all these leading lights really in the, cons- in the anti-conscription uh, campaign are arrested under a trumped-up charge of uh, being in league with Germany to uh, develop another rising, and that they are arrested in May uh, 1918 and taken away to Britain and in, interned there until most some of them some of them are, are released at different times but they're mostly not there isn't a general release until March 1919 of those people so these would include the luminaries of um, you know household names to most of us like Arthur Griffith, Maud Gone, Kathleen Clark. But Tommy Dillon was one of them. And Kathleen Lynn was actually in Tommy Dillon's house when he was picked up and brought off. Uh, But she dodged away. 
she escaped and therefore was still constantly on the run uh, when the flu b- broke out. And um, the Lord Mayor, um, Lawrence O'Neill, arranged for her to uh, give herself up so that she wouldn't be on the run and that she could publicly work with the flu patients because he reckoned, you know, they needed all the doctors that we can get. There were um, three other um, uh, doctors uh, Hayes, Cusick and McNabb, who were also interned and there were constant appeals for them to be released as well at the time. I think two Republican prisoners died of the flu while in prison or just after. Yes, um, oh, awful stories. Uh, the first one, uh, and again, uh, uncanny in their timing. Uh, the first one um, was Richard Coleman, uh, who had been out in Ashburn in 1916. He was from Swords and again, a leading light in, in the anti-conscription campaign. And he caught flu in December uh, 1918 in, in, in Wales. And um, there was a lot of reportage in, in the, both in the letters home, that the ones that got through the postal censor, and again, in the newspapers where people would um, tell the stories of what was happening to the internees in the newspapers. And um, he died just a couple of days before the pivotal December 1918 general election. His body uh, was, the newspapers were full of stories about how people perceived that he'd been mistreated by the authorities and that uh, his brothers were left outside waiting in the rain while he was dying and not let in outside the prison, uh, not let in until he was actually dead. And uh, how there was not good medical care for him, etc., all these things, and that there were other prisoners now ill with the same disease there. So anyway, he was brought home, his body was brought home, uh, brought from Kingstown into uh, Westland Row, and there on the platform in the beautiful um, Pierce Street station now uh, was Mrs. Pierce and many of the other women connected to the 1916 uh, rebellion uh, revolutionaries and uh, to the martyrs there. And they were all uh, lining, there were thousands, I think, lining the platform there. And his body was brought from there next door into that beautiful church next door. His name escapes me. And was left there until after the general election. So the newspapers were all full of this and all full of the detail of um, the position that various people in uh, the wider Republican and trade union movement were to play in the cortege on the, the to bring it to his body to Glasnevin Cemetery uh, the day after the general election. So Sinn Féin were really making sure to hammer home uh, the message about his death, you know, without trial, um, without proper medical care in Britain at the time. The last rallies, Kathleen Lynn in particular, talks about the last rallies in O'Connell Street where they have a break for each of um, the constituencies of the city and a separate speaker on each of them. And she talks about how, how on each break they were dressed with black crepe and that all the posters uh, around the city, the election posters, were uh, now adorned with black crepe and a cross to mark Coleman's death. So it was really used as propaganda at the time. Uh, then the next death was that of Pierce McCann was actually elected MP uh, for Tipperary East in that uh, general election. So McCann was elected uh, MP for Tipperary East in that general election, and he died on the 6th of March. He actually had been released and was in a nursing home near the prison in England. Um, The impression went out was that he'd actually died in jail, but he hadn't. He'd he'd been released, as had many of the other prisoners that were were out and too ill to travel. And... um, 
he, he died and then similarly was brought home and had a huge funeral march through the streets of Dublin, uh, followed by members of the New Doll, brought from Houston Station in a, it's now Houston Station, in a large crane carriage covered with, with uh, um, the Sinn Féin flag and brought down to um, Tipperary and from there to his family farm, uh, family home at Duhalla where he was buried uh, with uh, stacks of politicians and um, um, a couple of dozen priests at the, at the graveside. So the flu even produced a couple of, of Republican martyrs. But one thing that amazed me, you know, this pandemic has concentrated all our minds on, on looking back at the 1918 flu. And so I was looking back at many of the memoirs and so on that I have from participants in political events in Ireland in those years. And it struck me that very, very few of them mentioned the flu. Whereas if you look at, as I, as I said earlier, in an oral history source, lots of people talk about it. But it does seem to have kind of slipped out of the public narrative of, of Irish history, doesn't it? Yes. And it's not just Irish history. This is a global phenomenon, you know, part of the... the um labour we do, I suppose, for your PhD uh, work as you do uh, a literature review. And I've looked at stuff pretty much all over the world for, for it. And really the flu as a story uh, doesn't begin to snowball until Alfred Crosby writes um, his amazing book on it in uh, the 1970s. And then it gets reprinted again, I think or actually it might be 1960s, and then reprinted again under a different title in the uh, 1970s. And he looks at things like its effect on the American army as well as the American people, and also on the uh, Paris Peace Conference. And I think his work was so thorough and, and so, uh, you know, his own reputation was so strong uh, that that started a whole snowball of uh, influenza research until finally in 2000, uh, sorry, at the end of the 20th century, you have a conference down in Cape Town uh, held by uh, Howard Phillips and David Killingray uh, from Goldsmith. And um, they um, held this huge conference and then published uh, uh, an edited collection on it, which has been really uh, the backbone of flu research um, from uh, ever since then. And they also put in it a really uh, fascinating um, bibliography of all the work that had been done to date on it. And I'd say that, that there's treble of that amount of work done now. Uh, but in the Irish context, all they had at that stage uh, was um, a couple, uh, none, none of those big pieces uh, from the Bureau, uh, which goes to show you how valuable the Bureau work is. Uh, but um, uh, uh, some mention of Kathleen Clark having it and mention of Mulgan having it. And I think one other small piece. Yeah, and that's again, that's quite new research, I think, that the, the De Valera's family had it. De Valera, uh, while he was interned, it didn't hit the, 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 the place he was interned. Yeah, so he never got it. But his family at home, including, I think, his uh, mother in law died from it. Wasn't that it? She oh, his mother died from it. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, knew, I, I think it was, yeah. certainly. And similarly with. Um, um, some of the, 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 the families of those who were over in jail, uh, the, 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 there's a lot of heartbreaking correspondence uh, where they're talking about, you know, their, their uh, family back in Ireland having it, the babies having it. And one guy, a guy called Russell for, from, from uh, Offaly, uh, he was sent home because his son was very seriously ill with it. And the son, um, I think, was about 11 or 12 and died just a couple of hours after he arrived. So, like, you know, there's all this communication and worry that's evident through the letters from the prisoners uh, to and from their families. And finally, Ida, um, people are talking that about this pandemic is going to change the world utterly. How did the 1918 pandemic uh, change the world, if at all? 
It did in some countries have an influence on the medical system. So you see uh, in Canada, I think in New Zealand as well, and a few others, the introduction of a better um, medicine it is supposed to have, it's considered by uh, people who look at, know more than I do about such things, to have Isil Jones, for example, in, in, in Canada has written about a fine scholar of, of health. Um, she has written about how its influence on socialized medicine, the influence of introduction of like kind of universal health care, like in, uh, you know, or, or of a system like um, uh, the NHS uh, in Britain. But here, I think uh, while there was uh, uh, the report of the, the, the Irish Public Health Council uh, meets for the first time in, in October 1919 and brings its report in 1920. And it doesn't specifically mention the influence of, uh, it doesn't mention the flu by name, but you can see it nearly written into every line of it when it talks about, you know, the need to set up more uh, laboratories to test for, for disease and to have um, uh, more provision for uh, epidemic disease in the system, um, to have more joined up thinking uh, between all the different uh, bodies uh, and to, to reorganize uh, medical provision so that it works much better. And one, another one they talk about very clearly is communication. And I think that's because that was one of the perceived massive failures of the local government board for Ireland at the time, is that its, it's advice uh, on the flu uh, was really poor. And was written in kind of, when you read their posters, they were written in kind of gobbledygook that, you know, it's almost impossible to understand. Whereas people like Charles Cameron and the, the communications from Dublin Corporation were much simpler and easier to understand. So communication is really important now too. Yes, indeed. So lessons for today. Okay, Ida Miller, thank you very much. Thank you, John. So that was John Dorney talking to Dr. Ida Milne author of Stacking the Coffins, Influenza in Ireland, 1918-19. If you'd like to listen to any of our previous episodes, you can find them on our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter, at irishhistorypod, or like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you get a chance, please rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're now recently up on Spotify as well. Thank you very much for listening. My name is Cahill Brennan.